everybody and welcome to JARG, the podcast that brings you education and information on endometriosis and adenomyosis. My name is Kathleen King and I'm joined today by Johanna Huber. Uh, Johanna, you'll know from social media as being the Cork Physio Yoga and she has a fantastic social media account. Johanna, would you like to tell us a wee bit more about yourself today? So I'm a physiotherapist by trait and a yoga teacher. I'm based in Cork City in Ireland. I'm here 10 years now. Um, originally from Germany, as you can probably hear from my accent. And yeah, loving the lovely sunny south. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a beautiful part of the country. And every time I see you've got photographs up of your studio and your classes, they look absolutely beautiful, real serene, gorgeous environment. And I like from your website that you have, um, you know, that it's a science infused yoga, mm -hmm. you know, and designed to sort of make you move and feel better on a daily basis. And this really resonated with me because for a long time, like, you know, you sort of think that yoga and physio and Pilates and all that are sort of out of our reach because it's you're always thinking, oh, this is for very flexible people. This is for people who run marathon. This is for people who are doing this every day of the week. So is your class and your approach open to everybody or is it something that you need to be a wee bit experienced in? So that's specifically why I set it up. Um, I've worked a lot with athletes, with all sorts, like people of all sorts of ages, abilities. And I think there is quite a lot of services out there for people who are well-abled and who know how to move and who are well-able to move. And there isn't much for people who start from scratch or who'd be intimidated to move, who never really had a lot of positive experience with movement, with any sort of activity. And those people, I, I think, are always being left out, which is why I specifically set up my classes in a way that they should be as inclusive as possible obviously if someone has like an injury or like something that we need to work a bit more individually with that's a different issue but usually at some stage they be able once they do the individual work when there's quite some pain or whatsoever or something that's just not within the scope of a group class um usually they get to a stage where they feel comfortable and able to join back into a group class um but yeah i think for people who experience pain, who don't have positive experiences with movement, whether there was stuff going on in their childhood and they always felt left out or they felt like that's not for me, movement isn't um, where I always succeed. Because quite a lot, it's always about performance and about winning. And if you simply enjoy movement and you're not winning and you're not good, people usually stop doing it. And I think that's detrimental because we know how important movement is, not just running a marathon but like moving on a daily basis enjoying it um and not just physically but mentally emotionally as well it does it keeps all the blood flowing it keeps the energy yeah. going and it's sort of you know on a very basic level we need that that sort of movement don't we as well to, yeah. to keep everything sort of functioning and can you tell me a little bit more about your journey then for being a physiotherapist right through to incorporating yoga into the the practice that you have now you know what inspired you to sort of bring this all together in the program that you do we probably need a new podcast for that. <laughs> so <there's, laughs> that it, there was loads going on that made me change from only being a physio to a, being a physio and a yoga teacher to now primarily teaching community-based classes. Um, I worked as a physio in private practice in Germany. I did that in Ireland. And the systems, the healthcare systems are quite different. Um, and while you can't compare them at all, there was always a huge frustration about... Mm -hmm. Um, what they had in common was like, no matter how much I know, I still don't feel like or didn't feel like I could actually help the people um, because either in Germany, health insurance has told me I'm not, I'm running out of time. I'm not supposed to do this. Um, this is what I have to do with them, even though this is not what their symptoms is. And in uh, so health insurances in Germany quite dictate what people are getting prescribed. Um, which makes things quite hard sometimes. Whereas, and you have all the time with the people because physio in Germany is subsidized. Whereas in Ireland, it's not. The 50% of people who do have health insurance can access it. Um, the 50% who don't are, they're never seeing any of the waiting list physios in the public system unless it's a really severe issue. So that can take quite long. And even if you do have private health insurance, it's still a chunk of money and where I would see someone for an ACL rupture and post and pre-op for like six or 12 months 
I barely have like 10 sessions with them because it just accumulates. It's, it's a big stash of money, even though you get it reimbursed. So that really limits in what you can do with people, how much you can do with people. And a lot of the time, like I didn't become a physio just to work with people who can afford it. And there's so much information I know. And I continuously updated that information over the past 10, 15 years. And I just still feel I only see someone for one, two, three to five sessions, maybe. I can't actually use that information for them to maybe get out of pain, but then it keeps coming back. They, there's not enough time to actually teach them what helps them to kind of prevent, but be more well. And there were so many issues I saw where I always thought it's so frustrating. This could have been easily prevented or if they would have known a little bit more about their body and how, how things work, um, it, it wouldn't have caught them as bad. And this is why in Germany, we have a couple more preventional courses. You can debate now how much we can prevent things, but how we can ease things, how we can improve our quality of life. And there was a huge lack of that in Ireland. Um, and you can't just always complain about the service not being there. <laughs> so I just started setting it up myself and mixing the yoga and mixing the physio and using the that scientific approach from physio because um, we can't just use anecdote. We, we need evidence-based practice to... Uh, choose what's the best treatment for that person in front of us um, which is quite lacking in yoga it's all about anecdote and this is what we've been done the past um, 5,000 years but physio also mainly sees not mainly but like there's a because we are time restricted and the restrictions in general we have in physio we mainly work on muscles joints and bones and humans are not just muscles joints and bones and so much is mental and emotional health and sleep and there's so much playing in whether someone develops pain how fast they recover from pain and this is where the yoga I found was quite helpful and going into more the mental the emotional the cognitive practices the stress regulation practices how can we use breath and bringing those things together um, this is how it developed because I'm aware loads of physios go into pilates which is great for movement for exercise I do think though as a physio, I had enough of that background and more movement and more exercise wasn't what I was lacking. It was more like if movement and exercise isn't changing the person in front of me, um, what else can we do? And this is how it, it roughly developed. Yeah. And it's a lovely combination because um, I love the combination of, you know, the science based approach. And the anecdotal approach that we have and a lot of the, the complementary therapies that are out there. And I think, you know, you've ticked a lot of boxes for me. Like, I love the evidence based. I love the fact that you're continuously developing, you know, and I think that's so important for people that we work with as well, that we have that sort of professional background backed up by that continuous learning. Yeah. I think we always learn from people as well and we interact with them. And I think that's very important. Yeah. And do you find, um, I suppose, from, um, you know, working with the public and, and that and, and, you know, working with people who may have specific conditions like adenomyosis or endometriosis and with chronic pain, do you find that we're very reluctant to allow ourselves that time and to allow ourselves that space to take part in the class for one, but also to allow our bodies to maybe relax into something or to chances? Because, you know, when you're in pain, you really want to scrunch up and you want to just not interact with anybody in yeah. the world have you seen that with people with pain absolutely usually when we have pain we stop doing what we're doing and we're getting scared and we feel what if movement makes it worse so we go into fight and flight and we just play freeze and we think resting and waiting until this is over will help and we know with acute pain when there's a fracture or like a rupture or something we need to give it a little bit of rest so structures can heal but the, the advice actually is that even acute pain and injury needs really early movement. Dosed down, gentle, but it needs movement. And chronic pain especially needs movement, but it's really hard to find the dosage for that movement because um, it gives you blood circulation, stimulates your nervous system, uh, and that helps ease pain, that helps you feel better, feel more confident, release that fear that's surrounding that pain that you're having and that worry of what is it and will this ever go away. But a lot of people aren't quite trained in uh, 
what's the dosing about movement when someone is in pain. And when we are talking about endometriosis, adenomyosis, I there isn't so there isn't much research there as far as I know about can we actually call it chronic pain? It can be fitted into this box of chronic pain because it doesn't seem to react like chronic pain usually reacts because it's not just central sensitization it's there's chemical pain there's inflammatory pain there's nervous pain so to me it seems there's a whole extra layer to endo and adeno pain compared to what we deal with um, chronic pain so it is a part of chronic pain but it's so much more and I think someone who is even a little bit trained with chronic pain might 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 find it hard rocking with people who experience endonadeno pain because even the pacing, the dialing it down, the going with easy, gentle movement might still not ha- help those people because it's so unpredictable. And as much as we know that a little bit of motion, even if the pain is strong, is helpful, Let's be honest, anyone who's ever had an endo and adeno flare, sometimes motion is actually not possible and it's actually really triggering and flaring. And then being told, look, a little motion is still really important and good for you, it's not going to work. So we do need to acknowledge when, uh, when the threshold is just reached and we are, we are just overwhelming that system of the person experiencing that pain. And then we need to start finding different approaches, helping dialing down the pain. That is not movement. And that is the thing with endometriosis and adenomyosis, isn't it? It's that acute on chronic um, sort of situation that we have where you've got got that underlying baseline, but you've got these acute flares on top of that that do need to be managed very, very carefully as well, too. And I think knowing when to rest is equally as important as knowing when to move, isn't it? And I think one of the things, too, that, you know, like I've certainly seen over the years with with those who live with um, both conditions is the impact that it has on our mental health and our self-esteem as well. And can you tell me a little bit more like how, you know, the sort of yoga um, approach would be beneficial for the mental health side of things? So. Like yoga generally is always being advertised for it's good for stress management it's good for relaxation it's good for finding a piece of calm of dialing down pain but it really depends what sort of yoga and it really depends what sort of teacher and how aware are they of of pain of different types of pain and if you consider that yoga teacher training is a 200 hour training which is like a month of training it's impossible to learn all that so in fairness to a normal yoga teacher they just can't know all those kind of things and it might be a bit hit and miss that you go to yoga and it really works well for you or it just absolutely triggers. And this is where it's important to know there's nothing wrong with you. It, there's also nothing wrong with the yoga. It might just be that it's not what your body needs. And having the knowledge and how pain behaves and how people are quite individual is hugely important. So even when, uh, when I experienced, let's say, moderate pain, I knew from a physio, my, my yoga background, movement is important. And relaxation is important to help seize up the muscles because the more pain we experience, we have a tendency of like tensing the muscles, gripping, going into fight and flight, fearing that the pain is getting worse and not knowing how to deal with this. And this just really makes us hyper alert. And that's really detrimental for our mental health and for how, how we go through life because everything just feels like an extra trigger because we are so ramped up. So then knowing that I got to stages where the pain was so severe and strong. No amount of movement helped me anymore. No amount of gentle movement, easy motion helped me anymore. So that's where I really needed to go back to the yoga practices, um, practicing to rest when your fatigue is so severe that even taking a breath exhausts you. Um, I also did have thoracic endo, so that was a part of that as well. But generally, the fatigue that's coming with endo or adeno is not just being a little tired and you're not just refreshed after a little bit of a nap. So learning to take loads of rests, learning to prioritize, learning to uh, learning practices, breathing practices, relaxation practices, acceptance practices, compassion practices that helped me deal with the pain when I knew I couldn't change the pain. There's no way I can dial down the pain. I just have to face it. I have to accept that pain. I have to deal with it. 
because if I shut down and tense and go into fear and stress and anxiety, that pain is going to be so much worse. And that was one of the really, really hard parts when you just feel absolutely paralyzed and you really have to stay in the present moment and be like, right, <laughs> um, what do you know? What has helped so far? What has not helped at all? And I have to keep staying and focus on every second, trying to get through this pain, stay open, stay receptive, stay soft, because the more intense, the, the more ripple effect that pain is going to have in my body. It's almost like it is like what I used when the pain was really, really strong is end stage labor techniques. <laughs> um, how to keep your throat soft, how to keep your face, your jaw soft, how to keep your tummy, your shoulders soft, especially your pelvic floor, because the more tension there is. I felt that was my experience, but I've seen this from reading certain papers as well, that the more we are tensing, the more that pain gets us, the more tension and pain we're going to build up because we're resisting it. And it can be quite hard to accept and to acknowledge that we need to let go of that tension um, so that pain can basically ripple through us with the least amount of resistance until it can ripple out and flow out. So it's kind of like being open to that pain, letting it flow through you, not giving it too much resistance so it won't rip you apart. And this is where the yoga practices in that sort of pain stage were absolutely essential for us mentally, emotionally, physically to keep telling myself, this is not going to last forever. I don't believe this, but I need to keep telling myself, this is not going to last forever. I need to be soft. I need to focus. That's the only way getting through this. Um, and certain breathing types like horse lip breathing that people use at the very end of labor, like to stay focused, to keep the breath relaxed. Because what we usually do is when breath ramps up is hyperventilate, short breaths, tension in the muscles. And that just triggers us more and more, makes us feel like we are less in control. And it also makes us experience pain way more intensely. So those, those were invaluable because no amount of physio stuff, I have to honestly say, did help. No amount of massaging, no amount of stretching, no amount of physical yoga practices no matter how gentle they were, helped when the pain was just insane. It's one of those things too that we realize we're not born with these tools. Yeah. It's like learning to read or write or learning a language or learning a skill. We do have to learn them and develop them, don't we? And we have to work yeah. on them. Yeah. And, you know, like yourself, like I've developed those sort of tools over the years where you know that pain's not going to get any better that particular night or time or whatever it is. And all you can do is roll with it. And, yeah. I, you know, I love your analogy there of letting the pain sort of, you know, ripple through and flow because it always reminds me like of a waterfall and you've got the water coming down, it's, it's hitting the stones, mm. but it has to find the path of least resistance to yeah. get out because otherwise exactly. it takes everything down with it. And you're like, you have to get that approach, don't yeah. you? And we're not always successful 100% of the no. time, but if we can make it a bit easier on ourselves, it does yeah. make a difference, doesn't it? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about your experience with, um, you know, endometriosis and adenomyosis? And you mentioned thoracic as well. Mm -hmm. Can you ex tell me a wee bit more about your experiences with that? So I'm 37 now. Um, I think I suffered from endo and adeno for 25 years of my life. I had my first period when I was around 12, um, fully on, severe pain, throwing up, um, a lot of bleeding and my mom at that stage had three kids um later on four kids and i remember like she had all the, the tampons nicely lined up at home um told me right away everything about periods and stuff and said this is going to be hard and this is going to be strong and those are you can use the liners you can use the tampons see how strong your your period is and in germany i remember like i think it was the johnson and johnson there was like the yellow tampons for people were just starting to menstruate and I think the, the pink ones and the yellow ones for normal periods and the orange ones for people who have given birth and the green ones for people with extremely strong periods and within the first two three rounds of my periods I used my mom's orange and green tampons for like a person that used tampons after she had given birth to four kids and I used that for my first couple of periods because 
the first period was like cantilinas and that was just a joke <laughs> but because I'm pretty sure that my mom had endo and possibly adeno as well she didn't know any better so when I talked to her and I was her her oldest daughter and she passed on all that knowledge um, and we had a really open relationship about that um, so she said that is strong pain and that it, that's what periods feel like and in Germany you get to see a gynecologist once a year which is you can't even comprehend that in Ireland um, so anytime I mentioned there's always this talk about so how are your periods and I said well it's really long it's really heavy there's a lot of bleeding I don't really feel well um, but they didn't even ask me any questions it was just noted and that was it there was no talk so since there was no feedback coming about that I was like I guess that's just normal so it I honestly have to say it didn't really bother me that much because if you experience something like this you think that's just how how life feels like you know get on with it um and when i in my early 20s i went to physio school it was really active i was climbing and surfing and running and swimming um but i noticed when i get up into my apartment which is which was just the second floor i was out of breath and that just didn't seem normal to me and i started having stomach pains and I didn't connect those issues, obviously, but I did go to the doctor multiple times and got a camera down into my stomach and up my bum and they looked at everything. They couldn't find anything. And I had to go onto all the gluten-free and dairy-free and everything-free and joy-free. And it was really expensive and a lot of work and a lot of stress. And it just didn't change. It was every now and then quite okay, but every now and then really severe stomach cramps. And after I think I've seen six doctors for that, I just just let it off. And same with the breathing. I was just told that's maybe you're stressed. Um, maybe your bowel is, is, is like this because you're stressed. Um, so while in physio school, being told I'm stressed, um, I was like, I don't think I'm stressed. But they are the doctors. Maybe they're right. Uh, so I started doing yoga. <laughs> So those issues didn't change, although I did yoga on top of all the movement and exercise and dealing with life. Um, and while, to be honest, the yoga didn't change my shortness of breath and me not being able to catch my breath, although I exercised so much um, and I didn't think I was stressed and it didn't change my stomach pain, um, it gave me a different outlook on top of the physio. So while I started the yoga because they told me I'm stressed and I was pretty sure I wasn't stressed, it's now like my second part of career, which is interesting enough, I sometimes find. But um, back then, I also I was only on like birth control for three to four years. So I never really had this being on birth control and everything was controlled for quite long and coming off it and everything just um, getting really, really bad. It Because it just, I assume, looking back, it just gradually went worse and worse and worse. So you don't really notice. So throughout my 20s, that's just how things were. And in my early 30s, I noticed my periods are getting even stronger. And now there's clotting. And I had to, I knew when my period came, I had to take two, three days in the month where I just needed to cancel things. I could have pushed through. It just didn't feel great. So I just did the sensitive thing. and was like, just give yourself some self-care. And that's just what bodies need. And um, there wasn't much information um, at that stage that already lived in Ireland. So there wasn't regular gynecologist appointments anymore. So I tried to read a couple of scientific papers. There isn't really any consent about what's normal period supposed to be like. Um, I started getting a bit of spotting in between. So I couldn't really tell, um, is this my period now? Because there was two, three days of bleeding, two, three days of nothing. And then my period started. So anytime I would mention it to a doctor and they ask the question, when was the first day of your period? And I'm like, well, <laughs> there's a bit of bleeding and then there's nothing and then there's bleeding again. And they just used to get really impatient. So when was the first day of your period? And I'm like, I don't know. There's bleeding and there's no bleeding and there's bleeding. And some of them said, yeah, that's not normal. I was like, will you investigate? And there was never any investigation. So... And even then, reading that, when you get older in your 30s, periods can be stronger, they can be more painful. I just accepted that. And again, it, it didn't really bother me that much. 
um, until 2019, I think it was 23 or so, 22, can't remember, um, I had a suspected miscarriage, which I do not think was a miscarriage. It was really just in between my, my two periods, which was really regular. Periods were always really regular. Um, and so we couldn't blood test wise find anything. So which is why it was a suspected one, a lot of pain, a lot of bleeding. And then I started getting hot flashes. I started getting night sweats um, until six months later, I thought I had food poisoning. So I woke up with severe amount of pain rippling through me, ramped up within the seconds, barely made it down to the toilet um, with vomiting, nausea, cold sweat, shaking, feeling really, really unwell, feeling like I'm about to pass out from the pain, severe pain into all parts of the pelvic, anus, pelvic floor, vagina, into the bladder. And that would last two hours. And then it was just gone. So I thought maybe the chicken last night was, was, was a bit bad, you know, and didn't really make anything of that. My periods were still fine, regular, apart from ramping up a little bit and me getting a bit more moody around them. And then it happened again the month later. I was like, that's odd. Like my stomach is really solid. So food poisoning twice within two months. And that happened four more times. So that's when I was like, this is not normal. I went to my GP and he picked up on it right away. So I have to say male GP in his 40s in Ireland and he was absolutely great. And he said, this is not normal. This could be something gynae related. And I was like, how is this gynae related? This is food poisoning <laughs> four <laughs> times. I was, it was clear it wasn't food poisoning, but I was like, how is this gynae related? Um, got the usual scan, which would have taken forever on the waiting lists. So I paid for it privately. Um, I thought it was funny that they did it abdominally because anytime I got a scan in Germany, it's transvaginally. I even told them, they said, that's what they do. Didn't find anything. It happened again. Paid for another scan private. This time I really pushed them to do transvaginal and they found a cyst. Um, it still took a year to actually get a referral or get the referral into um, see a gynecologist. Although my symptoms got worse and worse and they got to a stage where I could barely function anymore. That didn't just happen every couple of months. Suddenly they started like four times within 24 hours. They got so severe and so painful. Um, like, I know this sounds dramatic now, but at some stage it was just on my hands and knees on the couch. I couldn't move for two, three hours. And I just felt like something is exploding inside me. There's like a bomb detonating inside me that's coming like a tsunami from the ribs all the way down, down into the pelvis. No amount of all the practices I tried so far helped anymore my boyfriend was just sitting there watching me because he knew we, we've been to A&E before we've been to South Dock before and my GP at that stage had said there isn't really anything he can do anymore I really need to see a gynae he kept sending emergency referrals into the gynecologist um, it still took a year to be seen so at that stage it was just I just barely left the house anymore because I never knew when it happened um, I was just working the bare minimum um, but I'm self-employed, so I still had to go to work. But when I wasn't teaching classes, I just dropped everything, prioritized everything because I felt I, I was so severely fatigued and I needed to rest. And I needed time when those episodes came to just work through them and recover from them. Um, I got severe bloating, severe bowel and bladder pains. And I think when we read about bowel and bladder pain, it's like, Michelle, what, what does that feel like? Like it really felt like someone had shattered a like a glass bottle inside my bladder, and all those thousand pieces of sharp glass were cutting into my bladder, and it was just insane, severe pain constantly. It had nothing to do with my period. It was not cyclical, it was totally acyclical. Um, my bowel felt like any time any sort of gas or solids moved through it, I honestly felt like a bomb was detonating inside me. It just felt like something is ripping me apart. I did all the right things that you're supposed to do when you know about pelvic health physio, squatty pot, relax, move, loads of fiber, loads of liquid. That did fuck all. It just still was the same. I was honestly crying on the toilet. My boyfriend on the outside door being like, is there anything I can do? Um, and it was honestly not fun. Um, the the severe bloating that only happened after the episode then just turned into constant 
and we're not just talking about a bit like there's a fart and you're not letting it out and you're a little bit bloated after a bit of a big meal it's such a distension in the abdomen i can't even describe it it just feels like some someone has just pumped liters of gas into you that stretch that distension is really painful no matter whether you take a step whether you move and it doesn't really change and once that got constant that was just really really hard to deal with um and generally it's i still find it really hard to describe the pain because it was so overwhelming initially just those episodes but then just constant sometimes it felt like a barbed wire around my organs just pulling into them sometimes it felt like someone just randomly stabbing me with a knife quite often there was a sensation of someone had set fire to my insides often those sensations came at the same time they were not refined to the pelvis there could have been pain in the kidneys up into the lower back I never had the typical shoulder pain I never had the typical chest tightness but I got within such a short time so while I was quite fine for I'd say 20 years and then it started ramping up over two years and I realized something is really wrong and then the the past year before anything happened, I actually couldn't breathe anymore. I couldn't get up the stairs anymore. I had to sit down halfway, like stairs has 12 steps. I had to sit down after six, six steps because I, I just couldn't breathe anymore. I was so exhausted and fatigued from it. So that shortness of breath was just insane. Couldn't even go for like a five-minute walk anymore. And that's when my GP kept sending in referrals saying, I can't deal with this anymore. This really has to be dealt with soon. Um, I still sent, spent 12 hours in A&E um, and after I asked multiple times, um, a resident had a look at me, poked me twice into the tummy and said to me, you look fine to me, here's painkillers, go home. And I told her, I ate all the painkillers, <laughs> 10 salpadina a day, do nothing to me. <laughs> I tried the buscopan, I tried the, the ponstan, I tried this and I tried that. It's like eating Skittles. So it's not working. And she said, look, there's nothing I can do. So by the time I actually saw a, a resident gynecologist then in a specialized endocenter that was three years in with a lot of pushing of my GP. And at that stage, I was just really, really at the end. And then it was a really brief, after you've been waiting so long to, to get in, to get answers, to discuss this. I remember I left that appointment crying. It was like a five-minute conversation being like, you probably have an endometrioma. We're going to do a surgery. That's the only way how we're going to find it out. Um, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a bit much. A um, lot of information, but no time to, to actually digest or ask any questions. When I asked questions, she got a bit ticked and was like, so you still haven't understood now. What, what are we going to do? I was like, I did understand, but like, I'm not stupid. Like I've really prepared for the session. I know all your all your medical terms, but you actually haven't answered my questions. So I kept asking my questions and she kept talking around in circles. And then she said, Look, this appointment is finished. Um, you're gonna get a letter and we're gonna tell you when your surgery is going to be. Um and that was again months and months of waiting. Um and me just just trying to make it through and at that stage my mental health had deteriorated so much, not just because you're dealing with this unpredictable pain and you just barely can do anything anymore. I was at a stage where I was mainly, I, I was mainly just moving between bed and couch and my partner doing everything for me and saying, look, I'm really scared when I'm leaving in the morning and I'm actually more scared when I'm coming home in the evening because I never know what state they're going to find you in. Um, and this really, like, there's no way this doesn't mentally affect you and emotionally because I got to a stage where I felt the pain was ramping up so much, not just month by month, but week by week. At some stage, I just couldn't do anything anymore. And I just, even the treatment I already received, which was hormonal treatment, which I told them isn't really doing anything. Um, I still had all the bleeding. I still had all the, all the pains on them. Um, so thinking you've been waiting so long and you've been pushing so hard and it's getting bad so fast now. And you don't even have any good days anymore. It's just constant solid for months now. Um, that really takes all your hope. Um, so I eventually had my explorative laparoscopy. There was not much pre-op done. 
they did not answer my questions again. I was about to cancel that. They told me, look, this really needs to happen. You have a cyst on your ovary. If this ruptures, you could go into an emergency. You really have to get the surgery done. And I was really suspicious because the treatment I received beforehand was not very comprehensive. They did not answer my questions. There were to- I was told, look, this is an endospecialist center. It's one of two in the countries. We know what we're doing. And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> but you want to trust the doctor. And I'm in physio. And I need to be able to trust in medicine and in science. So while I was about to cancel the surgery, because no one could actually answer my questions, what's going to be done? Who is going to be on my surgical team? Um, and they said, like, if you want to ask those questions, we have to cancel your surgery and then you have to be put on a waiting list again. And then you're going to get to see a consultant at some stage and then you're going to be put on a waiting list again for surgery. So either you're doing the surgery now or we're going to cancel you. So at that stage, I just felt I have no choice but go ahead with it. And they were supposed to excise the cyst and to do an explorative laparoscopy to diagnose endo. And um, there was not much more information given and I remember when I woke up um the person who who did my surgery just saying I'm really sorry it looks like a bomb detonated inside you it's really everywhere the endometriosis we didn't even take anything out and I told them I don't want them to take anything out because I already had read about excision ablation I said I just wanted to have a look um and if the cyst really needs to be treated treated but that's it um and she said look and the minute we we tried to do anything on the ovary ruptured, so it spilled all over your abdomen. And um, I was like, what was the point of the surgery then? Um, is this going to give me any relief? You pushed me having the surgery in order to get relief. And she was like, yeah, you're probably not going to get much relief. And that was actually an understatement. Like that surgery catapulted me into so much more pain that I ever imagined I could endure. There was no talk about this could happen. The pain was so severe for six months, the fatigue, the hot flushes. It seemed like that surgery just triggered so much more. And I think they weren't even aware of that this could happen. There was no phone number to ring and check. What can I do? Why is this happening? Um, three months after that surgery, that was the first time I actually saw a consultant. Um, and at that stage, I already had... <sighs> It's actually insane. At that stage, I was already lucky enough to randomly meet someone who went through the same stuff, who told me, and this is where where it just sounds absolutely batshit crazy. You meet someone who've never met before, who says, look, this happened to me too. There is a Facebook group. Read all that stuff that's in that Facebook group. And then you're going to travel abroad and save all your money and organize surgery abroad. And it was a time of COVID and you were like, you're not trusting Facebook groups. You're not trusting people that you've never met before. And the last thing you're doing is like, I did my own research and I traveled abroad for surgery. That's absolutely batshit crazy. Um, the more I did the reading, um, we've, all, we've all been there. Like The more you realize how barely any resource about endometriosis is up to date and accurate. And I was lucky enough to meet someone who pointed me in the right direction. I was lucky enough to then uh, be critical with that research I was reading and checking the background of the people doing that research and double checking who else is saying what they are claiming and was this, is this good quality or bad quality research and to be able to, to make informed decisions then and to learn that it's actually really hard finding up to that information that's accurate about endometriosis and that for decades now, there is different treatments suggested that are still not mainstream. And they have really, like, I don't want to say really good outcomes, but they have much better outcomes to what's happening at the moment. And I, I find the hard part about it all, apart from the suffering and that mind fuck that's happening when you're in such a different position and going through this pain and constantly waiting from one doctor's appointment to the next, just to be told there isn't really much we can do, and that's just what it is now, and fighting with them for up-to-date care, is that you have to be lucky enough to meet someone. You have to be lucky enough to be able to read research. And I was lucky enough to have a partner to support me through all this. I was lucky enough to have the strength left 
to fight for up-to-date care. And up-to-date care should not be a matter of luck. So at that stage, I knew that my only option is going abroad. Because if you consider that 80% of the gynecologists don't feel comfortable treating um, treating moderate to severe endometriosis, uh, while 20% of the people in a gynecologist clinic are suffering from endometriosis, which is a bit insane. Um, so I decided to go abroad and get this treated properly because at that stage, I was just a shell. There, w- there was no hope left. I, I stopped making plans for the future. I literally just tried. I didn't even try to get to the day. I tried to get through the seconds of the day. And that was not a nice time. And the, the medication, again, just did not do anything. There was no doctor to talk to. I was just told this pain can't, can't happen from after our surgery that we did. Um, and I know this sounds dramatic now, but there was so little hope left. There was, there was so much pain constantly happening, shattering my body. I was so focused all day long, just trying to dial down pain, to relax into pain, to deal with pain, trying to not collapse. While I was talking to people, it was absolutely ex- exhausting. I got to a stage where I couldn't even spell my name right anymore. When people ask me my email address, it's like I've been spelling my name for 25 years and now I can't do this anymore. So your mental capacity is just so diminished because 99% of your brain constantly try to sense pain, to relax into pain, to be like, am I collapsing now? Will I still make it home? I better find an excuse to get out of this conversation now. Um, or you can't get out of this conversation because you're teaching a class and you have to pretend everything is fine. Um, so before that first surgery, I really got to a stage where I had the feeling if none of the treatments are working and none, none of the doctors are actually giving me anything that's helpful, apart from the way they treated me in a not very <laughs> empathetic way, um, I had the feeling at some stage if this is not not going to change anytime soon the only way i felt i could change this was thinking of ending things and this is sounds a bit dramatic now but i just could not imagine continuing to live like this um and i think it's insane when we say endometriosis doesn't take lives because i know for a fact it does take lives it doesn't kill you instantly but i'm really aware that there is patients out there where the killing happens slowly, whether it's mentally or whether it's slow organ damage. And I think that is just quite severe and something to really to really be aware of. Um, so six months later, I had my second surgery with an actual specialist. I traveled to Bucharest um, to Dr. Mitroy. And while my first surgery was probably like, I think, half an hour, quick look in, two holes into the tummy, um, drain cysts, nothing else done, and it sent me into an absolute hell of a life for six months afterwards. I couldn't even walk into town, which is like a 10 minute walk for me. Um, for like six weeks after the surgery, I had to turn around, I was so exhausted. I had um, my second surgery um, with the specialist, which was, I think, like around five hours that took endometriosis off my diaphragm of my bowel, they had to cut a piece out of my bladder, all the usual places, peritoneum, pouch of Douglas, the ligaments. Um, they, we agreed that he'd take my uterus out and my cervix and my fallopian tubes for adenomyosis um, because the bleeding at that stage was constant for eight months. No one offered me to check my iron levels or do anything about that um, in Ireland. And I even remember the day before the surgery talking to the specialist saying, do I really need the surgery? She's like, it's not that bad. <laughs> and he started <laughs> laughing. He was like, 99% of the women who are going into the surgery with me think they're not in that much pain. So I woke up from that surgery absolutely out of my head. The pain was so strong. And all I could do was laugh because I was like, this is fucking really strong pain. It doesn't even... It's not even a fraction of what my endo and adeno pain was. Um, and from that moment I woke up, there was just so much hope again because I knew I could trust this doctor. If there is, if there's anyone who can help me actually have a quality of life back, it's someone 
who actually knows what they're doing. And he was one of those people who knew what they were doing. Um, while I was like on tensolpidine for six weeks after my first surgery, I took three paracetamol a day after my second surgery for seven days. I was able to walk two hours really slow in the park again. Really slow. Like, let's not slow look. Um, my catheter was still strapped to my leg because they had to cut a big piece out of the bladder and to allow for the healing. Um, I got a catheter for like a week. Um, my ovaries were suspended. So that can be really, really painful. So I'm not lying. It was still painful. But like I could snail pace, walk two hours, sitting down every now and then, five days after my surgery. Um, and from that on, like I haven't taken a single painkiller ever since. And that's 15 months ago. So um, it's made such a huge difference. There's no hot flashes. There's no pain. There's no bowel. There's no bladder. There's no shortness of breath. It's, it's like I'm actually shocked at how instant some of the changes were. And I remember reading beforehand how some people said, oh, the minute I had my surgery, I felt fine. I was like, bullshit. <laughs> that must be in your head. <laughs> like the physio and me said, like, how is this possible? <laughs> And I woke up from my surgery and I remember I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. That's exactly how I feel. And I didn't believe in this. And how is this possible? Um, so yeah. It's the weirdest feeling though, isn't it? Because you wake up and you're like, ah, there's acute pain, but where's the where's, yeah. where's my pain that I've known for 30 odd yeah. years? Where's it gone? Where's it gone? <laughs> and the freaky thing actually was, although I was still, it was still really painful right after the surgery. It just felt like, and again, this is really hard to describe. It felt, I, I couldn't describe it before because I didn't even know it was there. But once it was gone, I hugely realized it was there for years. It felt like someone had, had, had taken a huge, dark, heavy, gooey block of cement out of, out of me. I felt so much more free, expansive, light. It felt like there was life back in there. Before, it always felt like my core was severely weak and constantly working and constantly fatigued and exhausted and dragged. And there was such an instant change. It was almost insane. Um, I only realized until the surgery how much more pain there was that I wasn't even aware of, how much more symptoms there were on a daily basis for the past year or two that I didn't even think they were there because it built up so slowly and you get so used to this. It's like the frog in the, the warm water, isn't it? We, mm. It goes up a little bit every single day for us and we don't realize how much we're carrying and how much it's affecting yeah. us. And that big gooey cement block mm. is so perfect because it feels like that when it's gone. Yeah, You feel like that huge chunk that's been there for mm. years is missing, you know, and like you've touched on so many things there that over the last 20 odd years, I've heard from so many people. And like yourself, for me, it was a chance encounter with another advocate that pointed me in the direction that I've ended up in. And you've had that situation as well. And that shouldn't be left a chance. We shouldn't have to go through this. No. And, you know, like I, in feedback from a lot of patients over the years, often male and um, GPs or male gynecologists will give women the benefit of the doubt when it comes to their symptoms. Mm -hmm. That should be the case. It should be that if you're presenting with these symptoms, yeah. it should be a straightforward pathway yeah. and process. You presented as an emergent case as well, too, and were referred emergently. And that didn't progress down an appropriate pathway yeah. either. And I know people roll their eyes and they get fed up listening to me saying about don't go for repeated surgeries. Don't go for diagnostic laps that aren't going to do anything. Don't do this, that and the other. And you're like, you feel like you're screaming into the wind sometimes. Yeah. But then you have experiences like yours where, you know, your initial surgery was not capable of dealing with the condition yeah. that you had. And, you know, very similar to a situation I had. It exacerbates things yeah. on a log scale, not even just straight up. It just goes absolutely off yeah. the walls. And that's the thing with with surgery. We don't know how we're going to react mm. and why take a chance with seven, eight, nine, 17 surgeries yeah. if you can hold off and wait for the one surgery done right or yeah. possibly two surgeries if you have a very extensive case. And one thing I found, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, that, you know, the surgeon will never say to you they're going to cure you no. 
they're going to remove it all, they're going to do this, that and the other. The best it can give you is an estimate of how much an improvement in your quality of life that's going to be, or in some cases, an improvement in fertility. And it's weighing that up and, and you touched on informed decision making and informed choices. And we're very lucky with the scientific background. Mm. We can evaluate lots of information, but there are lots of patients out there who can't. Yeah. And I think that brings us back around to the role of advocacy and things like the podcast here and all the information that we have on Instagram. It's so important yeah. for people to share their experiences and share information, but it always needs to be tempered with those facts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, well, I've, I've spoken to other people recently about this and, and Heather Guidon recently, we spoke about how, you know, the information shouldn't be gatekept, but equally it should be made into an accessible format. And, you know, we, we chatted as well about the bladder pain and the bowel pain and that, and, you know, how vague that might seem to yeah. somebody, or if you're describing that shortness of breath, my shortness of breath and your shortness of breath yeah. are probably two totally different things, yeah. you know? So we need that. We need those lived experiences like yours as well. So in terms of, you know, your surgery, and it was very comprehensive and, you know, you've had a considerable time period since now. And have you used all the tools and all the, the bits and pieces that you would have gathered over the years to help in your recovery as well? I didn't really need much once the endo was, I don't know, like once the disease was out of me. Like, obviously, I needed a bit of time to recover. I gave myself time to slowly go back into moving, trusting my body. Um, I was lucky enough to know, like, that twinge I had in my diaphragm where they took a bit out. It was quite twingy initially for a couple of weeks and months. Um, it's not something you'd, you'd know about um, as a patient, definitely not as a physio. But because I had all, all the lived experience and the information, I got it from listening to experts, going to conferences, um, and my own lived experience that I knew I can, I, I can stretch this with movement, with breath, with those kind of things. So, what like I knew like to give it time to slowly build back up. Um, I went back to psychotherapy to help me trust the chest, what just had happened and stuff. But to be honest, the minute it was it was cut out, there there wasn't much dealing with it anymore. Like suddenly, all the the dieting and the managing and the and the stress stress coping mechanisms and the pain like as slow as small as my life had become trying to manage all those things doing so much for it to not get any worse or to just get through my day was so restrictive all that was gone once it was cut out and that makes me even more angry because i remember like considering i saw one of the considered three top endospecialists in ireland i remember fighting with her um where she said i'll just the thing is, like, I think once we know ablation shouldn't be done and excision is better, and you think the minute you find someone who does excision, that's already great. And it's still not. If they still are not able to cut it out everywhere and fully from all the organs, I think that's sometimes even a bit more tricky because you don't know how much can you trust that person. I ask her, how many endocases do you do a year? She didn't know. What's the recurrence rate? She didn't know. Um, and she told me, look, we only cut out where I think it's worth cutting out. Everything else is way too dangerous. There's not a single surgeon in Ireland who can do thoracic endo. And then we're going to put you onto, onto the pill. And hopefully once you go into menopause, it's going to be over. And I knew already that all this is not right. So all at this stage, I wanted from her was like a referral. Um, so I could go to, to Romania um, and at least get the money reimbursed, which is a huge chunk of money. I had to fight with her. She pretended she'd never heard of the cross-border directive, although I've talked to 20 people whose referral she signed before. Um, and she literally told me, don't go, you're going to regret it. And when I came back, because she had to do my post-op, she looked, she looked at my medical report and she said, that was, a, that was a waste of money and time. It's going to come back anyway. Um, so it's, I think it's one thing having an illness like and living through this and it's unfortunate that science isn't any further there isn't really one single person we can blame for that but i do think if someone claims to be an endo specialist they need to know better fair enough if a general gynecologist doesn't know yet i still would argue if this is 20 percent of your caseload you should know you should be comfortable and you should know what the up-to-date 
treatment and care of our endometriosis is. But someone who is actually claiming to be an endospecialist needs to know better. They need to know what the up-to-date treatment is. And it's not just come out the past couple of years. Like loads of those foundations have been there since the 80s. And I found the hardest part, the constantly waiting on the wait, waiting lists, nothing being done, you being left alone, not giving the actual information, having to figure out that the information you're being given is wrong. And it's not just not helping you. There's a huge potential it's making your life worse. And if a gynecologist has a certain amount of people where the treatment helps, even bad treatment sometimes helps people. That's just a matter of fact. So those people are going to go out and be like, this was amazing and this is helpful. And the feedback to the surgeon is great. And they're like, look, this is working. What about the huge amount of people where it's not working? What about the huge amount of people where this treatment makes them worse? And this has nothing to do with science if we only listen to the positive feedback. And negative feedback is important because it helps us reconsider and get better. And I found the hardest part, even though my pain was severe and there was no quality of life left, the hardest part was having to find this information, knowing who to trust, and organizing all this by myself with zero support of the Irish healthcare system. And it's absolutely frightening because a little bit of you still doubts I'm absolutely budget crazy going to Romania and getting surgery. And, or is he just taking my liver out and selling it? You know, <laughs> my parents, I'm coming from a really rocking class background. There was never loads of money. My parents offered me money not to go to Romania. And it's, it's this what I find so incomprehensible, which is why I did so much reading, so much learning, went to the conferences, did the, did the webinars with the actual endo experts to, to just collect this information and be able to make an informed decision because I knew I don't have much chances left of surgeries and the next surgery needs to be a good surgery. And while I never expected having such a life quality back, I'm still amazed how much life quality I have back. I didn't even hope for that. But I felt once it was over, my first thought was like, I just don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. I just want to get on with my life. It already took so much out of my life. But then I just felt I can't. Like all the information I've gathered, it was such hard work. Even just the doubting yourself, the am I just going batshit crazy now, jumping onto some conspiracy or whatsoever. So you always want to make sure that that stuff that you're reading is not just com confirming your bias. So that was a lot of hard work as well. So I thought, once I got the treatment and, and I, I learned all those things about endometriosis and up-to-date care, it just felt like a waste of information to me if it only would have helped me. Consider, considering also we think it's at least 1 in 10, possibly 1 in 8, 9 or 7 even, because there's such a, such a high amount of people where we still don't know whether I have it or not. Um, so this is why I, I felt I have no choice but start advocating and... I wasn't as lucky to know all the advocates in Ireland before my surgery. Um, so it's only happened the past year. And I feel there's a lot more advocacy generally in the public happening. But there's still a lot of perpetuation of out-of-date stuff. And people who are not experts of giving are giving big platforms and spreading misinformation. And it's not just enough to be a good gynecologist or a good obstetrician. If you're not up to date with endometriosis care, it's not good enough. If you're a nice person, someone can be the loveliest person and really means well and be empathetic and have good bedside manners and not be good enough in endometriosis care. And the people who have done the work and who are trying to make a change have small platforms. And I just feel if you are lucky enough to have the strength left and feel okay doing the advocacy, and I feel like this, it's an awful lot of work. And it's really taken, taken a lot um, out of me. But I feel I owe it to other people because I wouldn't be here where I am now, having a work, a relationship, a life again, having hope again, being able to plan for the future and liking my life again, like liking to live again. And I think for someone who's never had that pain, it sounds a bit pathetic, but that's just the reality of it. So I feel... The least thing I can do is paying it forward. I'm only here because I met someone who spent time with me 
telling me, this is where you have to look for information, read through all the files, be critical, make up your own mind and make an informed decision. And at the moment, I feel it's like a whistleblowing system. The only, the only way how most people get up-to-date care is because they're lucky enough to meet someone else who went that route. And it's like an underground system, which it shouldn't be. You should be able to get this information from, from your healthcare provider and not feel oh, like some dodgy black market stuff, you know? Yeah. And that is what it feels like. It feels like we're trading in secrets yeah. and that, you know, if you're in the know, you're going to get to a particular surgeon. I think it's compounded by a lot of factors. One, we don't have an international agreement on a definition yeah. of an endometriosis surgeon yeah. or specialist. So I can hang in a, a sign over my door and call myself an endometriosis specialist yeah. in the morning. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but and that's a problem. And then, as you say, with the big social media following or a big media presence, we know the guys who are doing great surgeries. A lot of them aren't even online because they don't have the time. They don't have the time to sit and write the journal articles. They don't have the time to sit on boards and committees. They're flat out operating night, noon and morning. And like I've spoken to these guys and they're working to the bone and they're trying to train the next generation as well, too, which is so important. And I think certainly when, you know, um, in speaking to people, I I talk about the cross-border directive. It is a European right. It's the same Mm. as you know, the parental leave, it's the same as a lot of other European things that we have. They're there for our benefit and our use. It's not um, anything that is a special privilege afforded to anybody. You know, it's there for us to use. We're European. We should make the most of it. And unfortunately, we lost the UK in that process a number of years back. And that was our nearest neighbour. We had a lot of patients going there. So when I mentioned Romania, it's like, like, as you mentioned with your parents, the horror, the scare, it's like, what? You're going to, yeah, but it's one individual surgeon, one individual yeah. clinic. And that's the same. We have people who've gone to Austria and we've gone, people who've gone to Germany. Um, I've got people who've gone to the Czech Republic as well, too, and obviously the UK. And, you know, it's an individual surgeon that you're seeing or an individual yeah. team or whatever. And again, that shouldn't be the luck of the draw. It shouldn't yeah. be a case that you found this post and then you went down the rabbit hole of researching it. That information should be available. And I think the ego is a huge thing in that. Um, If somebody came to me for advice and I couldn't help them, I pass them on to somebody who has that expertise. And you're the same in your your professional life as well. If you have somebody who you can't help, you're going to refer them to somebody who can do that. And that needs to extend to all of medicine. And I think with endometriosis, because it was dismissed for so long, and don't even get me started in adenomyosis, but (laughs) definitely endometriosis, it was dismissed for so long as get on with it, have a baby, mm. get pregnant. It will make you feel better. Then you'll cruise into menopause. And if that doesn't fix you, we'll castrate you. <laughs> and then you'll be even better. And it's like, that's, that's all we're, that's all we're deemed to be. You know, we're born, we menstruate, we breed, mm. we have, um, you know, the hysterectomy or the menopause and off we go then to death. The quality of life is lost in women's health. And you mm. have touched on so many points in your story and my heart was absolutely breaking for anybody who hasn't seen the video. Like I'm, I'm nodding along to everything that you've been saying and my heart is breaking. Listen to your story because it's the story of thousands and mm. thousands of women that I have spoken to and many overlaps of my own as well. Mm. And the rage is there because I was diagnosed back in 1998. We're now in 2023 and I know there are people still going through this and Johanna, we're going to see this in, 12 months time there's still going to be women facing the journey you faced as well and all we can hope is that with that information that we can help break that cycle and you know get to people earlier to make informed treatment choices and I think you know certainly like your conversation today you know will be a huge source of information and support for people and you know like it's it's been fantastic. I suppose just before we wrap up as well, is there anything else that you would like to add into the conversation or anything that you think would be beneficial for people who are listening? I think um, there, is, there is the potential of a lot of things that can help you manage and maybe easier symptoms, like changing your diet, like like exercising or any sort of variation of movements that you feel is contributing to you feeling better meditation yoga um massages acupuncture um dry needling um the important thing though is that you need to know that 
it's not going to shrink your endometriosis. It might help you deal better with it. It might help you modulate your symptoms. Some of us are lucky that it really dials down the symptoms so much that we can have a good quality of life. But we also need to be aware and be told that there is the possibility that endometriosis still continues growing for, for some of us. And down the line, things are going to get worse. And not everyone wants surgery. Not everyone can afford surgery. Not, not everyone wants to go down that route. And that's perfectly fine. But being told to do all those, I call them holistic alternative treatments, um, in order to treat your endometriosis, I think is not informed consent. When uh, we are being given the hope that if we do all those things, we're going to get better, but we are never being told that we might get better, we might not, we might still get worse because the endometriosis might be progressing and doing more damage down the line. And a lot of us are already trying to manage symptoms. All our life is, is trying to manage symptoms and be better with our diet and be better with our meditation and our relaxation and all those sort of things and go more often to the massage therapist, to the acupuncturist, um, to do the dry needling, whatsoever, that makes your life so small and adds so much extra stress. I think it needs to be clear what those things can do and what they can't. And if you feel they're adding benefit to you and it makes helps you deal with the pain, absolutely go for it, especially when you feel at the moment you're not in a place where you're going to get it treated surgically. Um, or you simply choose to never ever ever gonna do that and see if going with the alternative route is something that that is good for you. But it's not informed consent if you're being told that this is what you're gonna do, and there is no other options given. Oh, it's it's so true, and that informed decision making has to be the cornerstone of any reduces from start to finish, be it from you know before the first period right up to postmenopausal. Um, women need to feel that. The options are there for them. And, you know, I'm a big fan of that 1% theory where we take a bit of everything that helps, but we should equally be able to say, look, that doesn't help me. You know, being very stressed doesn't help me. You know, mm. eating bananas doesn't help me. Whatever it is, yeah. and be able to take those tools and put them together. Yeah. Johanna, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolutely fantastic conversation and we certainly could chat for probably at least another hour or so. Absolutely. Um, but thank you so much for joining me and for everybody listening thank you so much for tuning in to Jarg and we're looking forward to speaking to you again soon thank you